0: Last week, we started a series entitled Rich, where we're talking about this stuff here, money. And the real heart of the series, the real heart of it is that when we as people who claim to be Christians, when we understand, when I am a Christian, we understand what Jesus has given us in his spiritual riches. It's referred to in the Bible. We are heirs of Christ. We are given and blessed with unbelievable things. When we understand that and live from that place, this stuff here, money, the almighty dollar bill takes on a whole new meaning in my life, and I use it in a whole different way than what a lot of times we're used to doing. Along with that, the series also dovetails with an ideal young Bible school student. Many years ago when I was in school, uh, it's interesting to me, colleges, we train young people to be critical thinkers. And I was just that. I was a critical thinker when I was in school. I'd come into churches, and I'd size them up, and I was very critical. (laughs) And I'd walk out and think, well, what?" and I'd always be asking, what would I do differently? How would I do it? What needs to change? What needs to be better? And one of the things I walked away from Bible school saying, every single year... It is that when I become a pastor, I want to do a series on money. You say money? Why on money? Especially because if you understand my heart, my heart is to really reach out to people. The church is a is is a part of God's plan to reach people that are far from God. And when you talk with people that are far from God, people that are unchurched, what's one of the number one complaints you hear them say about why they don't come to church? All they want is my money. They complain about money. So why would you talk about money? Here's why I talk about money. Because money is something very practical that most of us deal with. Every one of us. But more than that, Jesus, Jesus Christ speaks on money more than he does heaven and hell combined. One of the, one of his famous sermons comes in Matthew chapter six. It's multiple verses long where he really deals with the heart of money. Don't worry about money. What do we do when we're poor and when we struggle? And, and, and in the middle of this chapter, Matthew chapter six, he says this for where your treasure is there your heart will be also where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Now, the heart of this, then, why I said I want to talk about money, is because I believe with all of my heart in the great commandment, which states, "Love the Lord your God with your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength." God wants all of us all of the time. He wants everything that I am. He wants all of me. He wants all of me to be bought into all of Him. And what this verse says, and in other verses in Matthew six, it says, "We cannot have two masters. It doesn't work." And a lot of times, where the number one, the Jesus understood it. I think it's why he talked about money. This is also awesome. the number one mode to understand. Does God have my heart is to ask what is my treasure? Where is my treasure? And a lot of us, myself included struggle with this green thing called a dollar bill. A lot of us live for this and this becomes our treasure. It happens subtly and it happens easily. And so what I want to do is again, as a young pastor, I said, Hey, let's just stop and talk about that and check our hearts and make sure that let's be practical about this thing called money. More than that, right now, currently, this talk, Rich, the series we're in, we're going to run it through the Sunday before Mother's Day. It's relevant because of where our nation is and where it's been the last couple of years. Most of you, most of you, myself included, probably, if not in the last 24 hours, sometime in the last week and definitely within the last month and last year, you've talked about our national recovery, our national recession. You've talked about gas prices. Probably, most of you, most of you has dealt, have dealt with fear and apprehension of some kind in your heart, fear of maybe losing your job, fear of your business not making it, fear of the retirement fund that you thought you were pretty well secure in and it. it's all but disappearing, fear for your kids and their future, fear for your college. I mean, back when I was growing up in high school, college was pretty much your ticket to success. Today? Ah, not so much so anymore. So there's a lot of us today that deal with this fear and apprehension. So we just want to stop and talk about it and say, what does the Bible say about this stuff and what it says about me as a person? Now, the Bible speaks about money a lot. As we kind of move into where we're going this morning, one of my greatest fears is that when we talk about this stuff, most of us view it through the lens of politics more than we do through the lens of the Bible. So I want to just kind of state that up front. I want to kind of work and unpack that a little bit. Most of us view money through our political leanings more than we do what the Bible says about it. So I want to challenge us this morning to step back and view it through our faith lens, not our political lens. Now to really get us moving and really talk about how recovery begins with us. Want you to think of uh, probably you can think of someone uh, maybe it's a rock star maybe it's a movie star maybe it's an athlete who made millions of dollars. It's they were young and they come up and now they're in their 50s and they can't dance on stage anymore. They can't put on the great show, so they're kind of sliding off into into oblivion. Uh, they don't have the ability to play the sport anymore. So now they they've and we start to hear stories of them doing what filing for bankruptcy. Warren Sapp, it just happened here in this past a couple weeks ago. Warren Sapp, who was a defensive lineman in the NFL, a great defensive lineman. I loved watching him play. He's now on the NFL Network. For those of you that watch football and watch that, Warren Sapp just filed bankruptcy. Six to seven million dollar debt load he's carrying. He makes $150,000 a year currently still today. He made millions and millions of dollars while he played. What happens when we hear these stories, and you, can, you probably could add other names to the list. What happens when we hear these stories? What's wrong with them? Not me. Are you kidding me? What are they thinking? That wouldn't happen to me. You go on, you talk about companies, talk about Circuit City. Circuit City, you know, 10 years ago, if I wanted to go buy a nice flat screen plasma TV, where would we go? We'd either go to Best Buy or we'd go to Circuit City. One of them doesn't exist anymore. They filed bankruptcy. Kmart, Ames. You go down a list of companies over the years that have been great, that have been huge. Gone. Don't exist today. You think, not on my watch. The U.S. economy. The almighty U.S. dollar. How does it happen? You think about this. Think about Saddam Hussein. You realize when Saddam Hussein... I mean, this money is gold for many years. This was the standard. You think about Saddam Hussein when he was captured there in, there in Iraq. In his bunker, they found 800,000 of these U.S. dollars. 800,000. See, our enemies even know that this stuff is the standard. They may hate us, and he, may, he even called us the great Satan, but he loves our money. Gaddafi is estimated to have be sitting on 1 billion U.S. dollars. Again, they hate us, but they know that our money is the standard. So I ask, how does it happen? How does it happen? How do we get here? How did this unfold? How does a war in SAP end up filing bankruptcy? We sit back and say, not on my watch, not me. As you think about this, as I interact with a number of you, you guys are smart people. I'd like to think I'm a smart person. Some days I'm not so sure. But the reality of it is this. The root of our financial crisis, I think we can make this personal. It's also, I think, for America. The root of our financial crisis really isn't financial at all. It's really, at the end of the day, not about money. It's more of a management problem, more than it is a cash problem. The root of our problem is not so much financial. It's interesting to me, when you think about this, and as a pastor, I see this happen a lot. Almost. This isn't always true, but almost no one pays attention to their problems or their problem until it's a money problem. Until I'm out of money, now it's a problem. But the reality is, the reality is, nine times out of ten, when you're fighting with your spouse about money, or you're worried and now it's got this huge, nine times out of ten, the reality is it's really not a money problem, it's a management problem. There's usually other things underlying that led you to the problem and you now see as a problem. And what happens is, when we begin to see it as a money problem now, we begin to scratch at the surface and try and figure it out. As we scratch at the surface and begin to cry a little deeper, we learn a couple principles that I want to share. Now, these principles, I want to be honest. I want to, I don't like to play drys as a pastor. So, uh, Chris has said, I, I love Chris for saying this. i uh, met Chris. He was the first one on the stage here this morning. Uh, Chris has said he wonders if he's ever thought an original thought in his life. And that's not to say put Chris down. I think Chris is being very humble in that. I think it's because we read and we study and we listen. And so much of what we say is really just regurgitating what we've heard. Um, so I'm going to regurgitate some of this. Some of what I've heard from a pastor named Andy Stanley. Uh, he's in Atlanta, Georgia. Some of you know his father, Charles Stanley. He, uh, Andy Stanley leads one of the largest churches in America right now. And as he talks about this money problem, and as he begins to unpack and talk about the problems that we begin to uncover... I'm going to use his main points, and then I'm going to add some things to it as we work through this. But the first one he says that we begin to uncover is we begin to understand we are reaping what we sow. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 says it this way. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 says, Do not, and this isn't a chapter. Galatians chapter 6 is a chapter all about dealing with problems. People who are having problems. How do you go to people who are having problems and work with people who are having problems? And in the middle of this chapter comes this. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man, what? Reaps what he sows. Notice how the verse starts out. Do not be deceived. See, you're smart people, but what happens a lot of times, though, is when we begin to reap what we sow, what do we do? When we begin to have problems... I'll speak for myself. I blame. I look outside of myself. I look for something else, someone else, some other circumstance. It's got to be causing this problem. It can't be me. It can't be my choices. It can't be what I've done. But the, the writer here in Galatians, the apostle Paul says, don't be deceived. Mature people, mature people don't look out there to blame. They begin to step back and look for something to do. They realize I've got a problem. I've got to find a solution. I'm reaping what I sowed. So let's dig down in. let's figure it out. Let's make it happen. So we reap what we sow. I think the second thing, was you look at our nation, you look at money and you begin to unpack this. The second principle, our problems stem from an abuse of prosperity, not a lack of it. We don't have a problem with money. We have a problem with how we handle money. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. If you're new to Christianity, if you're brand new to the church, if you're brand new to the Bible, you're going to find Deuteronomy in the front of your Bible. It's in the first five books called the Pentateuch, Um, big fancy word for uh, basically the foundational books of the Bible. You're going to see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and you're going to find the book of Deuteronomy. The, these first five books are foundational books to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel were God's, was God's pl- original plan to help spread his glory throughout the world. He was going to build this great nation around his principles and reveal himself to the world through them. So he lays out these principles, and in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we're going to see these principles come out very clearly. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is he's, uh, the nation of Israel is about to finally, for its very first time, going to get some land. It's never had land. It's finally going to get some land that was promised to him. They've been in the, in, out wandering around as nomads, living in tents for 40 years in the desert. And they're about to come into this land. So Moses, their leader, is going to write some things to him and say, hey, here's what you got to remember. Verse 10. Now, this chapter is filled with good stuff for the family. But I want to kind of bypass some of that and jump down to verse 10. It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities. Now, look at this. There's a theme here. You did not build. You have these great cities. You didn't build them. Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide. Wells you did not dig. And vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, look at what it says, crucial. You have all this stuff that you didn't provide. Be careful. Be very careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. See what he's saying? You're about to have some really cool stuff. You're about to have some stuff and some money and some buildings and some things that you did not provide. When you get it, remember me. Don't lose sight of me. You're going to have stuff. A lot of times our problem stems from abuse of prosperity, not a lack of it. Now I think when you think about this and think about the prosperity problem, I think one of the things is we have, I'll add maybe I could say me, I I have a discipline problem." And I, Andy Stanley, as he says it this way, I love this quote, "Whenever we have more of something than we need, think about this. When I first heard it, I'm like, ah, come on. But we really think about this. It, whenever we have more of something than we need, we are never disciplined with it. Think about your budget. If you're a person who makes more than what you truly need to live on, truly need the money, the house, the things that you truly need, we're not disciplined with it. I'll go to McDonald's more than I should with my kids. I'll spend more on them in Christmas than I should. I will begin to lavish them in ways that I shouldn't because I'm not disciplined with it when I begin to get more than what I should have. And it goes with food. Think about the food you eat. If you only had, we have so much more than what we need. I mean, I'm an example of that. I can stand sideways and you can see that. We have more than what we need and we're not disciplined with the things when we have more than what we need. Now look with me, flip with me over to Deuteronomy chapter 8. This thought continues. Deuteronomy chapter 8 i going to read a section of verses here. Look at verse 2. See the very first word? Remember. Again, don't forget, remember. These, this theme, remember. Look back, remember. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. Now, why did he do it? He did it. Look at the rest of the verse. To humble and to test you in order to know what was what? In your heart. Matthew 6, verse 21. What does God want? Our heart. Where are your treasures? There your heart is. So he says, I'm going to let you wander around out there for 40 years because I want to humble you. I want to test you. I want to know what's in there. Because before I set this great nation up, before I put this people together, I want to know that your heart belongs to me. Now, the rest of the verse. Whether or not you would keep his commands, verse 3, he humbled you. There it is again. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that each man does not live on bread alone, but on the very word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Verse 4, look at this. I chuck with this. I would love this as a parent. Your clothes did not wear out. I mean, my kids, good heavens, they sometimes put clothes on and a week later they've got holes in the knees and grass stains and their clothes did not wear out for 40 years. They walked around and had clothes to live in. You go on reading. Not only did their clothes not wear out, look at what else God did for them. Your clothes did not wear out, your feet did not swell. This is a big deal. They were out in the hot desert walking around as nomads in the hot desert. Think how sore your feet get with the nice shoes we have today. Their feet did not swell. Their feet did not hurt. They were cared for. God physically cared for them. And look at this. Verse 5. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God, what? Disciplines you. I want you to know, he says, when you get into this land, it's me. I want your heart to belong to me. I want you to be a disciplined people. I want you to be a people who love me with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. So to do that, to assure the foundation of this nation is built well, we're going to let you wander around. I'm going to discipline you for 40 years. So come in. We've got a discipline problem, I think, today. Many of us have forgotten. Now, along with a discipline problem, and I mentioned this one at length. Last, this was the whole subject of last week's message. We have an entitlement problem. We have a huge entitlement problem. We're spoiled. Might be another way to say it. We kind of live with this you owe me mentality. We whine and complain and we come up with all the reasons in the world why you owe me. The poor do it. Take something away from the poor. Listen to them cry. Take something away from the rich. They'll do the same. Take something away from my two and a half year old daughter that she's enjoying. And my, my, my other daughter walks up and takes it from her. What's the first thing the two and a half year old does? Give me my stuff back. She doesn't say that. It's usually a high-pitched shrill sound that echoes through the house. But it's, we do this. We're entitled people. Look with me at Deuteronomy. Continue in chapter 8. Look down at verse 7. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. Again, this is a good land. Now, I want you to think as I read these descriptors. Picture, these are people hearing this for the first time. They're hearing this, and they have been living for 40 years in complete and total desert wilderness with nothing. And they're about to hear this. So try and picture what they're hearing and seeing. Okay, verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you to a good land, a land with streams and pools of water. Right there. What's the first thing you want when you're in a desert? Water. First thing God says, I'm going to give you water pools of water, lots of water. So you're going to have streams of pools of water with springs flowing in the valleys and Hills. So everywhere you look, there's springs and there's going to be water flowing a land with wheat and barley vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. Now verse 10, when you've eaten, And are satisfied. Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Don't forget failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold increases, and all you have is multiplied, look at this, verse 14, then your hearts will become, if you have the NIV Bible, what's it say? Proud. Proud and entitlement run out of the same vein. Your hearts are going to become proud. You're going to be entitled people. And you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful deserts that... at thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known. Now here it is again. He reiterates his point. He said sort to of there to humble and to test you. So that in the end, it might go well with you. Now verse 17 and 18 are crucial. You may say to yourself, Catch this. This is entitlement thinking. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. Entitlement thinking is saying, hey, look at my good looks. Look at my charm. Look at my intellect. Look at my ingenuity. Look at my hard work. Look at my gifts. Look at my abilities. Look at what I have done and look at how hard I've worked. Therefore, it's mine. I earned this. I worked for this. It's the American way, isn't it? Isn't that how we talk as Americans? I was with someone this past week who was bemoaning a family tension that they're having because someone in their family is talking about, someone else in their family is beginning to take money from the government in a a government program set up to help the poor. And someone else in the family is really ticked off about this. And how can you possibly do that? You should be working for your money. You should be, and they go on this whole thing. And what I thought about as I reflected on that, I thought, you know what? How soon we forget, how soon we forget that everything that we have has been given to us who in this room has not ever taken a handout who in this room has never had help given to them so i think what happens is we begin to subtly think oh wow adam look at the hard work that you've done look at the places you've been look at the gifts that you have therefore you now have a senior pastor position what at the end of the day i forget real quick I forget that it was a friend who I was meeting, not even to talk about church work. I was meeting and says, hey, I know of this church over in East Earl that you might be interested in. It really fits your heart. I forget real quick that I was meeting with a mentor one day and beginning to talk about, do I belong back in ministry? And he began to say, hey, Adam, I have this. And he began to open doors and give the gift of Bethany to me. I forget that when I worked at Supervalue, and I worked really hard, yes, I worked hard. Yes, I reap what I sow. Yes, that's all true. But I forget real quick that it was a supervisor who I happened to chance meet in a break room on a one evening when I was down and I was out and I'm ready to quit. And he walks in and he sits down with me. And I thought I'm in big trouble because I was there when I wasn't supposed to be there. And he begins to talk to me. And it's he who began to open the door up for me to, to eventually accelerate up into management in that position and get out of that hard labor position that I was dying in. I forget. And what I begin to think is I'm finally over here in this great position. I begin to look back. Look at how hard I've worked. Look at all that I've done. Look at this great life that I've, manned. God is rewarding me for how I have lived. And I forget it was a handout that I took over here that got me there. That's what he's saying to the Israel, the Jewish people. Don't forget God don't forget what you have I have given to you nothing that you have do you have aside from what I have allowed to come into your hands we forget that we're entitled people we talked about that a lot last week I don't want to spend a whole ton of time and much more time on it the next one I think we have and this is a big one we have a greed problem now this why this is big Greed is one of those sins in the Bible that is railed on over and over. It is a, whenever you read a list of sins where it starts to go through this list of sins, it says, if you are blank, 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 and blank, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Greed almost always leads the list out. Almost always. Greed. There's only, I think, three sins in all the Bible where we are told to actually run away from. Don't stand and fight. Get away. Greed is one of them. It says flee. Get away from greed. Now, the reason greed is tricky for us is most of us don't see greed. For example, I've I've contemplated doing a show of hands on this one, but I won't. But how many of you have ever sat in your small group, in an accountability group, or with some close friends and heard them say to you, Would you pray for me? I have a real problem with greed. When's the last time you heard that? Most of us don't acknowledge it. We'll instead acknowledge, I've got a problem with anger. I've got a problem with alcohol. I've got a problem with my tongue. I've got a problem with pornography. I've got a problem with, 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 because we can see those things. But greed, greed is a tricky monster that really grabs our heart. Look at Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Jesus says to a group of people, he said to them, watch out. Strong words. Watch out. Be on your guard. Guard against all kinds of what? Greed. Very next thing it stated, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. How do you define a person's life? It's not what they have and what they don't have. That's greed when we do that. Now, I went looking for some definitions on greed this week. And here's, I think, probably the best one I came across. Greed is the assumption that everything that comes my way is for my consumption. The things that I have are for me, for my lifestyle. I have it, it's for me. The number one indicator that we have a greedy nation, do you know what it is? Do you know what percentage Christians give in America? Percentage of their income they give? It's less than 2% right now, currently nationally. Christians, those of us in this room, if statistics are right, the average The average, if we would all be honest with what we're giving, if we would all really open up and say, hey, here's what I make and here's what I give. Right now, the national average is less than 2% of what you make, you give away. And here's the scary thing. Here's the really scary thing. I think it ties right in with greed. Here's the really scary thing. In America, the rich give away less than the poor. The more money you make, the less money you give away. That doesn't mean amount of money. It means percentage right now in America, the poor, those under 20, making under $20,000 right now are giving away Christians who are poor are giving away national average, 8% of their income. The wealthy giving away 1.8% of their income. That's a greed problem. That's saying what I have is for me and my consumption and not for you. Dear church, missionary rescue mission. Cross-connection. It's not for you, it's for me. And I'm not giving it away. It's a greed problem. I think another thing, and this is the final one I'll mention and I'll unpack some of this in a real practical way. I think another thing we have in our nation, we have a failure of nerve problem. What do I mean by that? (laughs) Um, I think most parents in this room could probably relate to this one, but a failure of nerve is a leadership issue. It's when I stand right up to the edge and I look down and I say, there is the problem. I diagnose it well. And I even know what I need to do to solve the problem. But then when it's time to act, what do we do? I'm not doing that. If I do that, I'm going to lose my elected position. If I do that, I'm really going to tick some people off. If I do that, it's going to cost me money. If I do that, it's, and we begin to step away from the edge because man, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can do that. We got this failure of nerve problem. I think the verse that I would tag on with this one is Proverbs 29, 25. It says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. You know my greatest struggles with politics? One of my greatest struggles, they all lie to us. Here's what I mean. People always ask me as a pastor privately who are you gonna vote for? <clears throat> and <clears throat> excuse me, because I'm a 501c3 organization, I can't stand here in the pulpit and endorse any one candidate, technically. So I I think people like to know that in private, who you voting for. And and I don't, I often don't share it because here's why most of them are lying. Most of them have failure of nerve problems. Most of them, I get this. Most of them understand that they are going to be elected by you, by me. And I would never elect a candidate who doesn't look me in the eyes and say, this is going to cost you something. Candidates don't say that. They promise us dreams. They promise us what will happen and what can happen without ever talking about the pain, the hardship, the discipline, the difficulties that we need to go through to get there. It's failure of nerve. Leaders walk up to the edge, but then they step back and don't say the hard truths that the people need to hear. Now, you think about these issues. As I unpack them, excuse me, as I unpack them. Most of us, if we're honest, at some point through that list, you looked at it through your political filter, not through the Bible. Most of us, as we think about it, I even did a little bit with my illustration here. We look out at them and not at me. So what I'm going to do is I to unpack this one a little bit. I want to go to Matthew chapter 7. I think one of the greatest passages, if we want to recover as a nation, right here are the passages. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? In other words, why do you walk up to them and see their problems but pay no attention to your own problems? Why do you do this? He asks the question, why? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye. Let me deal with your problem when all the time there is a problem in your own life. There is a plank in your own eye. Matthew 7, verses 3 to 4. Why do we do this? The question is asked, why do you do this? Do you know why I think I do it? (laughs) I do it. You know why I do it? Because I feel empowered because when I look at you, when I look at my wife and I look at my kids, when I look at our elders, when I look at people that I work with and serve with, when I look at them and see them as wrong, I'm then right. And when I'm right, guess what? I don't need to change. And I hate change. Most of you don't believe that, but I truly do. I hate change. I think the second reason we do this is it's not easy for us to admit where we're wrong. You know why it's not easy? Because we don't see where we're wrong. And why we don't see where we're wrong is because of a good thing. There, isn't, there might be one of two of you in this room that this doesn't apply to. But most of you in this room did not get up this morning and say, I'm going to get out of bed and I'm going to look for the biggest and greatest means to my failure today. I'm going to try to do everything I can to fail, to be wrong, to mess life up, to blow it, to ruin my kid's life, to ruin my spouse's life, to ruin my career. I'm going to get out of bed today and I'm going to do everything I do to be wrong. How many of you did that this morning? Most of you get out of bed and say, I want to be right. I want to make a difference. I want to be significant. And we do and we move towards our spouses, our kids, the people we love with good intentions on our heart. So therefore, it's hard for us to see where we're wrong and where we're blowing it. So I think sometimes we struggle as we look outward at other people, we look at them and we begin to say, Hey, why do you do it? Now the verse continues and it says, this. it gives us this method for recovery, it says you hypocrite. Now we hear this word thrown around a lot. If you've been in church a little while, if you talk to people who don't go to church, they probably blame the reason they don't go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. Well, here's what a hypocrite is. It's someone who expects something of someone else that they're unwilling to do themselves. It's me standing here and saying, I need you to do this, but I'm not going to do it. My kids will say this all the time. (laughs) One of the things I'm doing right now to help try and cut back drinking soda and taking extra sugar in is when I really feel that urge to do it, I put a lollipop in my mouth. A little less sugar still staves off the craving. Well, here's what's happening. I put a lollipop in my mouth. What do my kids say? Can I have a lollipop? No. Followed up. Why can't I have a lollipop? Because I said so. How comes I can have a lollipop? Did you just not hear my answer? I said so. No. And then I get this one classic answer, classic response. Well, how comes you have a lollipop? Because I'm the dad, you're the kid, move on with life. You'll figure this lesson out, life will go a lot better for you. But it's a hypocrite. I'm going to tell you to do something. I myself, he says, you hypocrite. You hypocrite. First, now here comes the step. First, take the plank out of your own eye. Then, it's a promise then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, I know the end of this verse most of you want, and it's a cool desire. You want to make a difference in people's lives. You want to help people. You want to walk with people. You see junk in other people's lives that they need to deal with, and you want to step in and help them and make a difference. That's cool. It's wired in you to do that. But before you do that, first, take the plank out of your own eye. The way Andy Stanley says it. Here is what Jesus is saying. When something about you. Bothers me. I need to take a long look at me. Before bothering you. Here's the reality. We meet the same person. Over and over and over again. And it's me. When something in you. Bothers me. I need to stop and take a look at me. Before bothering you. Then. When I am willing to do that, then I'm going to see clearly. I'm going to see crystal clear. Now, so the first principle of recovery really begins with we, not they, me, not you. Now, I wrote some things down. I'm actually, I don't always script what I say. I, but I wrote these down because I won't want to really process this. We're going to make some of this practical. So if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, you don't have a lot of options in this. If you're someone here this morning, you say, I'm not a Christian. That's cool. I'm r- stoked. You're here. Glad you're here. Glad whoever it is that invited. You invited you glad you found us. I hope you consider some of these things. I say, but the end of the day, my heart for you is that you accept and walk with Jesus, embrace him. That's what you ultimately need. You can't do this stuff without first having Jesus. Cause without that, it's just duty. It's rogue. It's gut level. Push it out. But when I love Jesus with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, we want to do some of this stuff. So let's make this practical. Again, talking to the Christians in the room. First one. Am I undisciplined with my money? You say, yeah, but it's my money. It's my money. That's a plank. It's a plank. I need to get rid of it. If I'm up to the edge with my money, not saving, not giving, with consumer debt, living beyond my means, if so, if that is me, I'm a part of the problem, not a solution to it. So for me to sit with that plank in my eye and point fingers out at the current administration or any, my boss or my business or anything else is missing the reality of what it's going to take to recover. Am I undisciplined with my money? Imagine if all the Christians in the people who say I'm a Christian. Imagine if the Christians in this nation would get their financial house in order and the businesses they lead in order. Imagine the money we would have free to do to storm the gates of hell with. Imagine. So again, am I in one with money? Second one, am I greedy? We talked about greed. Am I greedy? Now, I, I, I reworded this a different way because and I'm just going to read what I wrote down because it's, <laughs> most of us don't see this. We have a hard time grasping this. We can't see greed in the mirror. So maybe the question asks, does 98% of what gets placed in my hand get used for my lifestyle? If it is true that that happens, I have a problem with greed. I'm ask, I ask myself these questions this week. I really probe deep in some of this. Maybe another way to ask it. Do you think about what you could do in your lifestyle with a little more money? It's the if I only had syndrome. It's greed. The majority of what I think about throughout the week is, man, if I won a lot this week, imagine what I could do. I could new car. Man, I could have a new computer. I could finally get one of those cool iPads and I could stop preaching from paper. That would be really cool. If I think, sit around and think about consuming. I got a problem with greed. Do you know what it would do if all the Christians in the nation would give 10% of what they made away? I want to pause here. This isn't a message I'm giving. This isn't a message to give money to the church. If you don't like our church, don't give money to our church. I really don't care. At the end of the day. Genuinely, sincerely. I would like for you to, but at the end of the day, I really don't care. At the end of the day, it's about being generous with what God's given me. And if I'm not giving away what he's given to me, I've got a greed problem. Imagine if all the Christians in the world would give 10% of what they made. Do you realize statisticians tell us that we would have enough money to eradicate poverty from this planet? If just the Christians gave away 10% of what they made. It's scary to think about. Another one. Here's a big one. Some of you are accountants. Some of you work with money. You want to know what is today. April what? It's all of our favorite days, right? Some of you love this day because it means you got a big refund. Maybe you got your refund already deposited and you're out spending, and you're having a grand time. But here's the question. Am I paying my taxes? It's a big one. Take the plank out of your eye. How many of you work under the table and don't claim it? How many of you waitress and don't claim your earnings? How many of you do side jobs for people and do not claim that money? It's illegal. You're part of the problem, not the solution. Am I paying my taxes? Am I being honest on my tax return? It was hard for me this year. I'll be honest. I do my taxes and I get this thing called a housing allowance. And we have a certain amount allotted for that. And I didn't hit my number this year. I was somewhere like $4,000 short of that number. I was so bummed I'm like, oh, I'm sure i 'm like i 'm sure here 's a thought process well i 'm sure I just didn 't keep good record i 'm sure I hit the number, so i 'll just pass it on to my accountant that I hit the number it 's what I was tempted to do in my heart. Am I paying my taxes? Another one men, this I want to talk to the men here men. This is one I wrote down. Are you taking responsibility for the children you brought into this world? Have you insured them, and are you paying their child support? Do you realize? <laughs> People tell us that one of the primary causes of poverty is related to this very thing. Children that are product of divorce oftentimes do not see the money that the court set aside for them to receive. I think of my wife who was off at Word of Life, a school in upstate New York. Her parents had gone through a divorce. She was struggling to pay to have her laundry washed. A lot of times she tells stories, I listen to her tell stories about doing her laundry in the sink because she didn't have the money to do her laundry. She worked her tail off, but a lot of children in this nation whose dads didn't step up to the plate and they get caught in this cycle of poverty and they don't have the resources that my wife had to pull themselves out and, and work hard to get somewhere. Men, pay for the kids you brought into this world. I can't say it enough. And if you can't stop having kids, fifth one, are you in disability, but know you can work. It's a big deal you're in disability, but know you can work and you're able to work Sixth: This is a big one too. <laughs> Hope I don't step on too many more toes here, but this is a big one. Are you stealing from your employer? If so, you're part of the problem, not the solution. If I'm stealing from my, how do I steal from my employer? I'm stealing from my employer. How about this one? Some of you that file expense reports, do you exaggerate in your expense report? Maybe you didn't really drive that 10 miles that you said you did. Oh, it's only a couple bucks. Maybe you fudge in your timesheet. Maybe you use their copier for your Christmas cards and don't pay them or reimburse it. Their paper, their ink, you're stealing from your employer. If so, I'm a part of the problem. Here's another big one. Do you smoke pot or use the illegal drugs in a room this size? There are some of you here that do that and struggle with it. Can I be honest with you? If you really stop and understand this issue and understand what you are supporting when you do this it's 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 sad do you know why and this i was talked with chris this past week he said you got to share this because this is kind of funny my kids don't know what a cassette tape is they have no idea and some of you think well man i remember the eight tracks and all the other stuff and i don't know and the records and but my kids don't even know what a cassette tape is anymore what is this thing do you know why there's not a cassette tape cartel like there's a drug cartel you, this may seem silly and elementary, but you know why there's not one? Because no one wants cassette tapes. Do you know why there aren't cassette tapes being packaged and shipped into America illegally? Because no one wants them. The only reason they get shipped to us is because we buy them. And do you realize that when you buy illegal drugs and smoke pot, you're supporting the abuse of women and children and aiding poverty all around those third world nations like Colombia and other places down there. Breaks my heart to think about. If I'm a Christian, I have to believe that every single dollar that comes into my hands came from my Heavenly Father. And if I'm using my money to do that, I'm supporting the abuse of women and children, something that God absolutely abhors and he hates. Here's another one Are you violating copyright laws and pirating movies and music? Now, I could come over here and look at this group right here and talk to them, but guess what? It's not just an issue for the young. I struggle with it too. I photocopy books that I shouldn't photocopy. I'll download music from other people. They let me borrow their CD and I'll say, oh, that's cool. I'll just copy, rip this song and put it on my iPod. No one will know. Do I pirate music? I'm stealing if I do that. Do you fudge in on insurance claims or have you? And find the final one I'll stay in. I could keep going with a list like this, but I think it's really important for us to stop and look. In here. The final one is, are there things the failure of nerve issue? Are there things in your family that you're afraid to confront? Every parent in this room has probably at some point wrestled with the failure of nerve issue. Are there things that you're scared to confront your wife on? Things you're scared to confront your husband on? Things you're scared to confront your parents on? Things you're scared to confront your teenage son or daughter on? I'll be honest. I get this one. When I go to confront either my wife or my kids or one of you, if ever I need to do that, you know what? i watched me sometimes. If ever I come to talk to you, I just sit in my hand just does this uncontrollably. It's called failure nerve. It's called I'm more afraid of you. I don't truly love you. I don't truly, I'm not truly for you in a way that compels me to come to you with boldness and courage, humility and mercy to say, I love you enough that I need to say this to you. Instead, I end up with my kids backing out, giving in. Ah, yeah, boy, I I don't want to do that. They're going to hate me. Failure of nerve. Are there people that I'm just backing away from and I'm scared of? If so, I'm a part of the problem. For me to sit and point fingers at the Obama administration and say, hey, man, don't be afraid of men. Do your job. I'm a hypocrite. The thing I'd end with, can you imagine, just, just imagine, if all the Christians in this nation would just address issues like this and say, first, I'm going to deal with this thing in my eye before I walk out there and point fingers at you. Again, it does not begin with they, it begins with we. It does not begin with you, it begins with me. If we take time, honestly and sincerely, if we take time to look in the mirror... The promises in Matthew chapter 7, the clear promises, we will be able to see clearly, see crystal clear. And when I can see clearly, I'm able then, it says, to walk to you and serve you and aid you in helping you remove your speck. When I can see clearly, I can now use this to serve you and walk with you, which is something most of us want in this room. We want to walk with people and care for them. But it starts by looking at myself. To end, my wife is going to come and actually sing a song, Tanya. Uh, And I kind of chuckled uh, this past week. She said to me, what's your message on? Because I really wanted to end the message and trying to find a song about money and about this kind of stuff was a little difficult trying to find a real moving, compelling song. There aren't a lot written on it. So we began to look around and she began to look around and I told her kind of what the message is about. And she looked and she found this song. Uh, it's by building 429. It's called where I belong. And here's the heart of it. I want to challenge us as she sings this to really stop and reflect and look inward uses at the a time. There's a tear off in your bulletin that you could rip and, and again, respond to the message. You can share prayer requests. Uh, But really use this as a time to reflect and think through and look in the mirror and really the prayer of your heart to be. God, capture my heart. Help me to see and love you with everything that I am from the heart and not be wrapped up in the treasures. The song sings, it sings things like, take this world and give me Jesus. Take this stuff. Take this current that I'm swept away in that we get so easily caught up in and give me Jesus. Give me that blessed assurance that's found in you when everything else is crumbling around me. Give me Jesus. Let me pray for her. She's going to sing, and we'll have a time of reflection as we get ready to end the service. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for uh, his work. It's moved in our direction. God, as we think about money, it's a tough subject to talk about. It's one that most of us, that list we talked about, I'm guilty. Uh, boy, we can look out and see others' failures, but God, help us to stop and look at me, not you, Not them, but me. Help me to address and be honest with what it is that's captured my heart. Is it you or is it the stuff of this life? God, help us to give that up and just hold on and cling to Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.